My name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are here with us this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 24, continuing in our series uh, called We Want a King. And if you have been tracking with us in our series over the past few weeks, uh, especially if you were here last week, I'm very thankful for Pastor Matt and the text that he took us through. It was a very difficult section. I thought he did an amazing job taking us through that. But there's been uh, a, a few times, especially recently, in our, in our past couple weeks where you've read something or heard something or I've been studying something and it just has to stop and pause. I'm like, wait, what? What did, what did I just see? What, what did he just do? What happened there? And a lot of times the Bible presents us with these kind of difficulties. Uh, it, it can be difficult because it's revealing something in our lives that's difficult to deal with. Uh, a lot of times the scripture works like a mirror, and there's a lot of times when we stick, look into the mirror, we see things that we don't like uh, about ourselves. There's, there's also things uh, that are just difficult for us to get our minds around in the scripture. So there's one pastor, uh, he said that this way, he said, when we come to the Bible, we often discover that the Bible understands us more than we understand the Bible, and a lot of times that's hard. It's hard for us to sit with the scriptures and to have God speak to us and to reveal these things to us. The Westminster Confession kind of speaks to this as well, too. It says, not all things in scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear, meaning there are some confusing things, but all the things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are clearly stated. What that confession is saying is that salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God alone is the Savior of his people. That relationship is crystal clear. But there's other things in the scriptures that are not as equally as plain, which is why you have a lot of godly people, a lot of scholarly people who study the scriptures hard but still end up on different sides of certain uh, topics and, and perspectives. And so as we work through our text this morning, we really need to hold that posture. We need to really approach this morning's text with a posture of humility and a posture that's ready to listen and to have God speak to us and to make, to make what he wants for us to hear really plain and really clear. Um, not that it isn't important to do good study and to do good scholarship, um, but what we want to have God help us with this morning is to help us see uh, the, the main thing as the plain thing. You got that? Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll get into 2 Samuel chapter 24. Father, we love you. Um, God, your word says that you are righteous in all of your ways, and you are kind in all of your works. And, and God, I want us, um, and I'm asking God that you would help us to really soak in that truth and to soak in that scripture as we turn through the pages of 2 Samuel 24 this morning, as we look at the story in David's life. God, will we remember that you're right in all of your ways and that you're kind in all of the things that you're doing. Um, God, we do need your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. God, I pray that you would uh, fill me up. God, I pray 
that would, I would not be trying to lean on my own uh, ability or skill or even my own understanding, um, but God, that you would just really work in and through me in this time. God, um, there is a confrontation in this passage. God, there's a confrontation in this moment. Um, it's our pride. It's our autonomy that's being confronted so, God, I just pray that you would deal with us in the most gracious, loving, and kind way, God, and that we would experience your mercy this morning and that our affection for you, Jesus, would grow. We pray and we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so let me kind of set the stage with the story, uh, and then we're going to go back and we're going to try to work through a few things out of this passage that present itself that are, are kind of a challenge to us uh, when, we, when we look at this, at this passage. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 says this, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, it's important to note, and we're going to look at this in a second, that this uh, passage is a parallel passage with 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, so it's the same story, different author, different perspectives, and we're going to see why that matters in a moment. But what's happening here is that David wants a count primarily of how many men are in the army. Uh, and you would do a census like this if there was going to be uh, a, like a draft where you would have to enlist more men into the army in the next coming year. So the, the census that we use today is more of kind of like a market research tool. But in this culture, a, a census was really like a flex of, of power. It was primarily for uh, getting ready for a military draft or even to raise taxes. And here in this story, the census is really not even necessary. There wasn't a draft that was imminent. The, the military is more than sufficient. They didn't need to raise taxes because the, the government at the time really wasn't that expansive. So, which is partially why in verse 3, Joab uh, protests to this. Joab, verse 3, says this, reply to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may... May the eyes of my lord the king see it, but why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? So Joab is very uh, diplomatic here. He's like, you know what? I hope that whatever we find in this census is even better than you imagine. However, I don't think this is a great idea for us to do this. And it's not that a census necessarily in and of itself is a bad thing, but Joab realizes there's a motivation, there's something underneath this that's just not good. This just doesn't feel right. This doesn't kind of sound like the right thing to be doing. But the king insists, and so Joab and his army carries this out, and this is a massive military operation. It might be one of the reasons why Joab really didn't want to do this, because he has to mobilize all of his men. It's a huge, huge undertaking. It's, it's very similar to the census that Caesar Augustus ordered in Luke chapter 2. It, it's not just this benign going by and counting. This is an act of bureaucratic terrorism. It, the purpose is to mobilize military power. It's a show of force, a show of might. There is a kind of aggression that's to it because there was a, a fee that was to be taken um, every time that somebody was counted. 
And it's completely, in this instance, completely unwarranted, completely unnecessary. But what's happening here is that David is being seduced by the power that he holds. So the census is carried out, and Joab brings the report back. So skip down to verse 10. It says this, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. If you've been tracking with David's story, you're kind of seeing the progression of how sin affects David. If you remember in his sin with Bathsheba, it really wasn't until Nathan confronted him that he got to this point. But now here, as soon as it happens, David's like, I'm a fool. And I've done a foolish thing. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, so why is David struck the way that he, that he is? The key is really back in verse 3, what we just read. Because Joab has an insight to it. And he's saying, David, you're, you're going to delight in this. Meaning there's a part of you ordering this census and us kind of taking the census and us showing the force and the might and you getting the results, you're going to delight in that a little too much. David really wants to know how strong his army is. David really wants to hear repeated back to him how much power and influence he has. Uh, Dale, Rafe, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, he offers three things behind David's delight in the census. So why, why did David delight in this? He says the first reason is, is pride. And you're, and you're going to really see that as David's undoing, honestly. But it, it's first his, his pride, how strong he's made the institution, what his leadership has produced, um, and when there's pride in our life, it's, that's when we just start to look, we look inward. And then when pride goes up, your faith goes down. You, you start to look in, and rather than looking up, you're looking down. So there's pride, and then there's lack of faith. What's happening here is David's faith is what can be done with human might and human skill, what he can see, what he can touch, what he can have, what he can hold. He's not relying on the promises or the provision of God. And so his pride's going up, his faith is going down. And then the third thing is, is there's an aggression that kind of fills in the space. And it's the same for all of us. When our pride starts to go up, when we bow up, we're, we're now no longer relying on or looking towards the, the provision or the protection or the promises of God, and it creates a, a gap in our life. And what we often do is we fill up that gap with, with aggression. One of the reasons that you would want to know how many fighting men you have is because you're thinking about picking a fight. And that's where David's at right now. And his boast is not in God's grace his boast is not in God's provision, but in his own strength. He's not delighting in God's promise of protection, but he's delighting in his own army, in his own treasure. When, when we started this series, we started with the line uh, that we are using for our series where the people say, we want a king like the other nations have. So that they were coming into some prosperity, they had more possessions, 
They had more position. They, they had more platform. And they looked around at all the other nations, and all the other nations had a, had a physical, actual king that they could see who was there protecting their stuff. And so the people of God were like, we want that. We want to replace God with a human king as our source of security, and now David is doing the same thing. Aren't you glad that we don't do this anymore? We do this all the time. What do you delight in? What, what do you count? And when, when the count is up, your spirit is up. When the count is up, your heart just soars a little bit more. Is it money when the money is, is up? That, and that's, that's a cheap shot. That's a little too easy. Because if you've ever not had money and then had money, it feels better to have money than to not have money. But is it that? Is, is that when, when that count is up? Is it recognition? When the recognition is up, it's there. Then you're up. When it's not there, then you're down. Is it your own uh, like physical appearance? That one works a little bit backwards because when the number on the scale goes down, you actually go up. Is it what you, what you possess, what you have? When you stand in your driveway and look at your house or look at your vehicles or look at your toys or look at the stuff or what you achieve when you get the pens and you get the plaques and you get the awards, and you, is that what it is? When I, when I first came to this church uh, in 2007, I was hired as an associate pastor uh, to work alongside uh, Tyler Johnson, who he's been here before, uh, in our college and young adult ministry uh, called 710, which we still have today. And um, this was one of the largest college ministries in the Holy East Valley. Uh, we had about 400 people on a Tuesday night. It was, it was awesome. And I mean, truth be told, my favorite thing that I've ever ha gotten to do in ministry has been working with 710 with college students, young adults. My heart's really tethered to that people group. And this for sure was like dream job for me. This was the best job I, I ever had. It was awesome. Uh, about six months after I got here, Tyler actually transitioned out of his role to go do some other stuff within the church. And then I became lead pastor of, of 710 of this large young adult college ministry. And I just could not be more excited. Um, and so within about three years, I was able to grow uh, this ministry of 400 people down to about 30 And it was brutal. <laughs> and it, it crushed me. I mean, these gatherings were absolutely agonizing. And, and when, when people showed up, my attitude would just get better. And it was like, okay, life has been breathed in. And when people didn't show up, and when all like the odd, weird people showed up, <laughs> it just it, it buried me. And it took me a long time to learn the lesson of how I delighted in the idol of ministry, a good thing that I had become an evil, wicked thing to me, and not delighting in the God who was the point of the whole thing anyway. So what are you delighting in? Because if it's not God... It's an idol. 
Look at verse 11. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad. The prov- I'm not, that's not a Boston accent. It's for God. It's Gad's the name. The prophet David Seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Okay, so David's about to get like the worst version of the, you know, pick your three wishes genie thing ever. So Gad went to David and said to him, okay, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent you. Verse 14, and David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. Now, I know for a lot of you, this is the kind of stuff in the Bible that just makes it really difficult for you to trust God. These are the kinds of stories Like when people ask you, why do you wrestle with the scriptures or why is the Bible hard for you or why is even Christianity difficult for you? It's this kind of stuff right here. So I want to work through some of those things that that stood out to me, and there might be more that you have, but these are some of the things that stood out to me when I was looking at this that are kind of difficult. Okay, so why did God incite David? Because that's what verse 1 says. Why did God incite David to do the thing that God would punish the people for. It doesn't feel very fair, does it? And we'll we'll get to that in a second. So verse 1 says, The Lord is angry. The Lord's angry, and he incites David to do the thing that displeases him. And then there are consequences for people who had nothing to do with that decision. That's how it presents, doesn't it? Okay, so now remember, 1 Chronicles 21.1 is the parallel account for this. Do we have that scripture, Harley? So this is what 1 Chronicles 21 says. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Okay, now we made it even more complicated because 2 Samuel says, well, God was angry and he incited First Chronicles now says, well, Satan rose up and he incited. So, so which, which is it? What we get in this story and in these passages is a great picture of God's sovereignty. It's the belief and the understanding that God causes or allows all things. It's a, it's a teaching, it's a doctrine that's deeply rooted in, in this church. And the Bible teaches us that sometimes God allows us to fall prey to the temptations of Satan. The Bible is explicitly clear that God is not the one doing the tempting. The Bible's very clear about that. Satan is the one tempting and inciting, and we are the ones who choose to yield to that temptation. And God can stop that if he chooses, but if he does not, he allows us to follow our own wicked desires as part of his good and perfect plan. 
So in this example here, really both of the texts are correct. Satan was behind the whole temptation, and he prompted what was already residing in David's heart. And 2 Samuel shows us that God allowed it as part of his sovereign purpose and plan. Nothing is outside of God's control. He works all things according to his plan, but that doesn't mean that he is always the one who's doing those things. Uh, one illustration I've heard to use to try to help to understand this, and every illustration breaks down at some point, but I, but I hope this is helpful. Say you have a river with a really strong current that's flowing in a particular direction, and it's flowing between two river banks. The fish in that river are, in one sense, free to move about any way they want in that river. But in another sense, they're all moving to a precise point within a carefully outlined set of boundaries. That's like, that, that is like God's sovereignty and our free choices. We are freely choosing certain things, but God is moving history, and he's moving his purposes, and he's moving his plans, and carrying it exactly to the place that he wants it to end up. And there are moments in our life where we are aligned with the current of God's will and purpose and plan, and then there are plenty of other moments where we are constantly pushing against the current and wearing ourselves out. But ultimately, ultimately, it is the current that wins. It is the purpose and the plan of God that is fulfilled. So how God takes our free decisions and even the evil intentions of Satan and works them for his perfect plan is a mystery for sure. But this is the part where faith in an infinite God who has infinite wisdom, who is always right and just in what he does, comes to bear on us. And, and pay attention to what the text says, because we can have a cursory reading of it, um, and, and it causes a great deal of, con of confusion, but we need to pay attention to what the text says. It says that the anger of the Lord was against the people of Israel. Go, go back and look at the, that verse 1. They have become idolatrous and prideful just like King David. So God is choosing to use the deceitfulness of Satan's ideas and David's own sinful inclination in order to punish the people of Israel for their wickedness. Okay, a second place of stumbling for us in this story. What was really so bad about what David did? Because if you look in the book of Exodus, there is a provision for a census to take place. And God actually lays out this is how it should happen. So it's not, again, like a census, not necessarily the bad thing. So what is so bad about what David did? And it really does seem like a massive overreaction to send a plague on the entire nation because David did this one thing. The short answer is it's wrong because God told him not to do it which culturally for us really doesn't sit well because we are fine with God's ways, we're fine with God's laws as long as they make sense for us, but when it starts to infringe upon our freedom, when God's laws and God's ways start to infringe upon my own autonomy, that's when we're out. 
But if Jesus is to be Lord of your life, if Jesus is to be king, your obedience cannot be restricted to only what you understand or agree with because God is Lord, not just advisor over your life. And it's not that God is calling for us to be these mindless robots. It's not what this doctrine is about. It's an ordering of our lives under. It's a question that says, God, what do you have to say about this? God, what is the way that you've given me to handle my money and handle my relationships and handle my parenting and handle my life and handle my vocation. It's you ordering your life under that question, God, what do you say about this? So often we order our life under the question of, what do I want to do? What do I want? And that's how we order our life. Or what do I agree with? What makes the most sense for me? But rather, asking the question, God, what do you say about this? We touched on this just a second ago, but the three reasons that the census was wrong lie in the motivation behind it was why it's so appealing to David in the first place. You see, the reason that temptation works on us is because it's enticing or it's stirring up something that's already in us. For David, again, it's pride. It was already there, a lack of faith. It's been growing, and aggression. That's also in David. In chapter 22, if you, if you went back to chapter 22 in 2 Samuel, David writes over and over again. He, he writes this song, as he's prone to do. And he writes this song, and he's talk. And, and if you look in chapter 22, there's this, these refrains all through it. He's saying, God, you've given me, you've given me, you've equipped me, you've delivered me. God, you brought me into a broad place. You rescued me because you delighted in me. So it's over and over and over again about the provision and the protection and, and, and the purpose of God in David's life. And he writes this beautiful song laying all that out. Pride makes you forget or at least ignore the provision of God. Pride makes you forget the provision of God. Pride makes you think there is a greater pleasure outside of the provision of God. Pride deceits you, deceives you, (laughs) into believing that there's greater pleasure outside the provision of God. See Genesis 3. And just like in the garden, here, the voice of Satan creeps in. David, dude, remember the glory days? Remember all the, like, the, you, are, you are God's man after his own heart. David, remember, remember the Goliath thing? Bro, you killed a giant. Remember, remember that song? Remember how that song went? Like you, you struck down tens of thousands. Do you remember that, David? And yes, I mean, okay, we got a little off track with the Bathsheba thing and then your kids, all that was, that was all like unfortunate. But listen, David, David, don't forget, like, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what you've done. I got a great idea. I got a great idea. Why don't you count up all your stuff? Why don't you count up everything that you have? Why don't you flex on these fools and show them what you got? And then when you get the results back, 
not only will it make you feel great, but you will revitalize your brand. People will recognize and they'll remember who you are. And you'll be able to say, look at everything that I built. Look what I did. David, doesn't that sound like a great idea? And it goes right to the pride. And it goes right to where the faith has been lacking in his life. There's an aggressive part of David. Remember, he's a warrior. There's this aggressive part of him that just gets stoked and and starts to just kind of blow up. And just like our very first parents, and just like you, and just like me, David listens to the voice of the evil one. And it pushes all the right buttons. And the reality is, and the caution to us, is that every single one of us is susceptible to this. Um, my friend, mentor, the founding pastor here, Tom Schrader, would always talk about the, the curse of prosperity. The curse of prosperity. Because it lulls us into the very same things that David is experiencing here. A.W. Pink says that the fuller the cup, the steadier the hand required to hold it. And for many of us, we have very full cups, and it doesn't take much for us to get shaky with it. And God does provide a way of escape. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you'll be able to endure it. Because Joab here is a particular grace in David's life because he interrupts and he's like, King, why would you do this? Listen, I I hope it's great. I hope it's better than you even imagine. But can we push pause? Why would you do this? But like we do so often, David pushes through the warning. He pushes through the caution. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor, he says, when we push through the hedge of protection that God has put up for us, don't be surprised by the thorns that will cause us pain. And that's what David does. He pushes through. So there's pride, there's lack of faith, there's aggression. In the Old Testament, most of the judgments that God brings against society is because of their aggression and because of their violence. In Genesis 6, it says when God sent the flood, it was because the world had grown so violent that every thought of men towards each other was was one of violence. Ezekiel chapter 16, when it's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that they were judged because they were violently oppressing the poor. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he sent them there because they were so brutal at oppressing all the surrounding nations. When God sent the Israelites into Canaan, it was because of the Canaanites' brutality, like things like infant sacrifices, and they were constantly pillaging their neighbors. So the promised land was given to the Israelites as a judgment on those nations. And so what's happening here in chapter 24 is that Israel is becoming like the very nations that Yahweh has judged. He set them up to be set apart, and now they're just as aggressive and they're just as violent as all these other nations. Another difficulty, and we're almost done with this passage, is that it really doesn't seem fair. It it really doesn't seem fair because why are the people punished for what David does? Well, again, we've got to pay attention to the text here because it says the Lord's angry at Israel 
partly because they have the same issues as their King David. They've, they just participated in this big rebellion that we saw in the previous chapters against David with Absalom. And then what we saw Matt teach us last week, uh, another rebellion against God's man with Sheba. So David is God's king and the people rebel against him. And a lot of commentators, they actually say that the plague, um, what, only fighting men died. Uh, there were about 70 military units. So about 70,000 people died in this plague. But the takeaway here is that we are really all under the curse of sin without the, the blood of Jesus. Sin is comprehensive in that it affects everything, everyone, everywhere, which is why we believe the gospel, the effectiveness of the gospel, is greater than that rebellion. And so if sin brings a curse everywhere, the gospel brings healing and forgiveness and mercy and grace and love as far as that curse is found. And that's the understanding that David seems to have and that you and I need to have and to be able to see this clearly. Look at verse 14 again, and with this we'll be close to done because this is really what we need to leave here understanding. He says this, David says to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is what? It's great. You're all very excited about great mercy because his mercy is what, church? Great. Don't let me fall into human hands, he says. The Bible consistently takes us to the reality that in the presence of suffering and chaos and calamity like we have in David's story here, there is no one more loving and merciful than God. And when we finally see things clearly, what will amaze us about God is not his judgment, which is right and just, but his mercy. David has already experienced this once with the prophet Nathan when mercy covered him by telling him that the Lord has put away your sin. David's already heard once. He's already experienced once. You cannot sin your way into oblivion if you are God's child. The Lord has put away your iniquity. David is saying, Lord, only you can save and forgive. Only you, Lord, are merciful. And if my life has to be in anyone's hands, it has to be in your hands, Lord. David is at a point in his life and his experience with God that he sees it clearly. He's like, if it was up to the justice of, uh, or the hand of men or God, I will always choose God. The, the calamity is clear. He's obviously perplexed and his need for mercy is real. And he knows, God, you are rich in mercy. You are abounding in steadfast love. And if I have to be in anyone's hands, God, it has to be your hands. Tim Keller, he says that God forgave David in this story for two reasons. One, because he repented of his idol. When David wanted to count the army, he wanted to be secure in what he had built with his own hands. He wanted to be in the security of his own hands. But when he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, he's saying the safest and the most secure place that I could ever be is in the merciful hands of God. He repents. And the second reason that God forgave David is the gospel. Look at verse 16. It says this. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, 
withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was at the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. And when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. The angel of death, he gets to a certain spot in Jerusalem, and God sees it, and God is, is grieved. And, and he's grieved, and we've seen this already in, in this story. He's grieved over what sin is doing to his creation, what sin is doing to his people that he loves. In verse 17, David says, let your hand be against me, the, the shepherd, not, not the sheep. Punish me, not them. But David can't do what he's asking for because David has his own sin. But in this moment, God is looking through the corridors of history. And in this moment, God sees the great shepherd, the spotless lamb, as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And in this moment, God's moved to compassion because he saw us and he saw his faithful son, Jesus, give his perfect life on that gruesome cross, and God forgave. Mercy. In wrath, Lord, remember mercy. And we see here the character of God. He has no pleasure in death and destruction that sin brings, and his loving plan is that all of that will be put on his only son so that we could be saved. The band's going to come up. We're going to close now, and I just want to finish the story here. Let me read this in verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arunah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings and here are the, the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. And Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayers on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. The plague is not stopped because of the altar or because of the sacrifice or even the strength of David's prayer. In fact, the plague was stopped even before the prayer. It didn't depend on the prayer, but it was still given as an answer to the prayer. The plague was stopped because of the mercy of God. So at the end of the story here, what happens is David, he buys this piece of land. It's the threshing floor. It's a place where wheat and chaff is separated. And he offers this sacrifice of peace and atonement. And what's really significant about this geographical location is that a thousand years earlier, Abraham was told by God in that very same spot, take your only son Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham goes through with it. And at the very last minute, God stops it and provides a ram as a substitute. And in this very same place, a thousand years after this moment with David, Solomon would build his temple. 
The temple was the place where men and women would come before God to meet with him, to repent of their sin, and to be restored to relationship with him. And many scholars believe in that same spot a thousand years after the temple, the son of David, the great shepherd, would lay down his life for the sheep. David desired what he could not do. He is the king after God's own heart, but he was just a man under the same curse of sin as me and you. But there is one who knew no sin, but became sin on our behalf, and who was wounded and bruised and crushed for our sin, our rebellion, our iniquity. There is no one else who could save us from our sins, save us from ourselves, save us from the wrath of God that was due us, except Jesus, the Son of God. There has only ever been one way to be saved, Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news that while you are more failed and flawed than you could possibly fathom, you are more loved and forgiven in Jesus than you ever dared imagine. We have said all through this series, the point of looking at David's life is not just to see David, but to behold and worship and to surrender to David's son, King Jesus. Jesus, who is the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, a shepherd who will not lose his sheep but will die for them, a father who will not neglect his children but will die in their place, a king who will not use people but who will give his life for them. And 2 Samuel ends where Israel dies because of the sins of their king, but it points us forward to the coming of a king who would die for the sins of his people. Israel dies for David's sin, and Jesus would die for ours. Israel was punished because of the sins of their king David. Salvation is ours because of the righteousness of our king Jesus. And every week, we remember this gospel message through communion. Around you are two elements, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have come to a moment of repentance and faith, then these elements are yours to eat and to drink in remembrance and in celebration of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. I was telling Brian Berger, one of our pastors this week, I was like, man, I really um, am ready to be done preaching through this because every week, I'm just seeing more and more just the ugliness of my own sin. And this week in particular, I really got to a place where like, God, if it's not for your mercy, I've got no shot. And this moment of communion every week is a, is a glorious confession of our weakness, of our brokenness, and the strength of the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And when you eat and when you drink, you are tasting and you are saying, God, without mercy, I got no shot. And if I've got to be in anyone's hands, God, I need to be in yours. I want to be in yours. And so if that's your confession, if that describes your life, 
that your faith is alone in the perfect life and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Eat and drink in remembrance and celebration of who he is. Let's do that now.